0: Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Blowing the whistle is a risky thing to do. Nobody likes to hear bad news. But often, what stands between us and a disaster is a whistleblower. Think of all the popular films we love about whistleblowers, Aaron Brockovich, Silkwood, Serpico, Watergate, Chernobyl. Also consider the horrible repercussions whistleblowers faced from people in power when they came forward. Not every whistleblower is a knight in shining armor. But shouldn't we want to hear from anyone who believes better is possible? That's why some say, We need stronger policies in the private and public sectors to shield people from retaliation when they do decide to blow the whistle and to require investigation of the concerns raised. On this episode of At Risk, you'll hear from Dr. John O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is a Fort McMurray physician who first spoke out about the potential negative health impacts of the tar sands on his patients living in Fort Chippewan back in 2006. Soon after that, he was accused of misconduct by Health Canada. Two years later, Dr. O'Connor was cleared of any wrongdoing. But the people of Fort Chip continue to wait for a comprehensive health study. You'll also hear from lawyer David Yazbek, who provided expert testimony to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Government Operations as part of the first statutory review of the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act. That committee issued 15 recommendations in 2017. None of them have been implemented. According to a study by the Government Accountability Project and the International Bar Association assessing global whistleblower laws for their legitimacy, Canada tied last with Lebanon. Canada. Last place. What? Please listen to Dr. O'Connor and David Yazbek on why we need whistleblowers and how Canadian and provincial governments can better protect them. Thank you for joining me, Dr. O'Connor, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you. So tell us, you've been described as a whistleblower. What did you blow the whistle on? I am
1: useless on the whistle. I play guitar and banjo and mandolin. I I have a mandolin. Um, So... Basically in the course of my practice in the community of Port Chip in northern Alberta um I after listening to elders describe their concerns for the community um in terms of health and environment I discovered a burden of pathology um including cancers and rare cancers in the community of 1200 people that really shocked me
0: Who did you share this information with?
1: Initially, colleagues in Fort McMurray, uh, you know, wondering if, and mainly specialists, actually, wondering if they were aware of uh, seeing patients from Fort Chip with um, malignancy and autoimmune diseases. And uh, on reflection, they agreed they had and they were, and they were concerned but it, it sort of hadn't occurred, uh, you know, to them, you know, it, seeing patients on a referral, you know, you know, specialists don't always look at the address. But when, when it was um, brought to their attention, they agreed. And then I went to Health Canada. Uh, health Canada is responsible for on-reserve health and for CHIP, most of the communities on, on a reserve and i was met with um silence from health canada
0: and when you were consulting with specialists and reaching out to health canada did you think you were doing anything controversial or did you just think you were fulfilling your duties as a physician
1: i had absolutely no inkling that i was doing anything other than uh fulfilling my my uh, duties as a physician. Uh, one, one of the duties is advocacy. And, uh, you know, and, and that hadn't even entered my mind. It was just curious and concerned and went to the authorities that I thought should be already aware of it, or if not, should be aware of it.
0: And so what, what was Health Canada's reaction?
1: At, at the outset, nothing. It was Incredibly uh, looking back on it. At the time, I thought, you know, maybe they're busy. Um, but looking back, it was very um, curious and for me, concerning that I wasn't getting a response. And when they did respond, their initial uh, reaction was no, there is no issue in Fort Chip. The community had been ever complaining about the changes in the environment, the changes in the water, in the wildlife, the fish that they, they lived on, uh, fish uh, taken from Lake Athabasca, four chips on the edge of Lake Athabasca. The community's uh, concerns fell on deaf ears. But when the media got hold of the story, which happened purely uh, accidentally, the Reaction of Health Canada was to send three physicians to the community, and when they landed, they went to the nursing station in Port Chip. Went into the kitchen. One of the physicians grabbed a mug, filled it with water from the sink and the tap, took a swig of it, and turned to the uh, nursing station staff. And at that point, there was a Global Mail reporter. It, it the news broke uh, very quickly in the media. A Global Mail reporter was. Witness to this, and he said, "You see there's nothing wrong with the water here in fort Chip and that, and that was the the stance that they took, and they've kept to their opinion and that stance ever since
0: so obviously that's not the reaction you were looking for. What were you hoping to see from health canada
1: i I, I thought You know, uh, especially as I was communicating with physicians, I thought the reaction would be one of equal concern and uh, that there would have been some uh, sort of research or a deeper look, um, you know, from Health Canada. and, And then because, you know, part of the community is not on reserve from the province. And that did not happen. It was not until like I said, media got hold of the story that there was a reaction, and the reaction was the opposite of what I expected
0: and And you ended up uh, coming under personal attack as well. I,
1: I did. Um, I, I was uh, shocked in March of 2007 when I got an envelope from the College of Physicians and Surgeons here in Alberta. Um, the envelope contained documents uh, detailing a list of complaints that both Health Canada and uh, the Province of Alberta had laid at the College regarding my activities and practice in Fort Chip. And in fact, it went deeper. Uh, there was allegations of financial wrongdoing and double dipping, uh, which it it wrapped it me to the core.
0: Yeah, well, it's so personal, right? Obviously, you know, uh, an allegation of uh, impropriety like that, right? That's not a that's not a casual observation. <laughs> that's uh, that goes to the heart of integrity.
1: Absolutely, it, it was. You know, at the time, I didn't realize it, but uh, as as time went on, it was an effort to um, uh, have my license taken away.
0: And were there any protections for you as someone who was raising a health concern?
1: None whatsoever.
0: Wow. Well, and do any protections exist today?
1: Uh, th- there is some whistleblower protection um, in the province or, or, or a, a, a sort of a type of whistleblower protection. Um, I don't believe it's uh, effective. Um as far as i'm aware, Alberta has the poorest uh, whistleblower protection in the country
0: and you know just just thinking about you know thinking back on the story you just told, you know obviously you would you would have wanted to have seen at least some level of protection from retaliation. <laughs>
1: Yeah, at the time that, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I, I, I expected, um, you know, a, a, a sympathetic ear, um, a, a collegial collaboration. Um, but yeah, but then as time went on and when, when I got these complaints and I had nothing but myself and my information and, 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 you know, very quickly afterwards, the community for Chip, And and then from that point on, the Canadian Medical Association uh, supporting me. But I did not realize that I I had no idea. I'd never met a whistleblower. Um, I had no idea that I was a whistleblower. Um, But yeah, it it was a very um, it was it was a a steep curve of learning that I was on, Um, and it lasted almost three years.
0: Well, one thing that kind of strikes me is that. I mean, for for sure, you were asking questions, raising concerns. But what you are also doing is, you know, very consistent with how we think about science, right? Uh, we we observe, and then when we when when we observe things that we don't have explanations for, we seek explanations.
1: And and you know th- that's something that is part and parcel of my daily practice.
0: Right, of course. Um so so you were saying earlier, you know, that 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 the matter of cancer rates in Fort Chip, it remains unresolved. Has any research been done or or where do things stand today?
1: So in in response to um, public and media pressure, um, the Alberta Cancer Board, uh, part of the Alberta Health uh Provincial Health uh, Service, did a, a study in 2008. Um, a study of cancers. Prior prior to that, Health Canada had uh, indicated that uh, from their records that cancer rates in Fort Chip were no higher than expected, and and you know completely within the norm for a community of its size. Um, nobody bought that. Uh, the Cancer Board in 2008 did a, a year long cancer study of the community, and, and they found a 30% higher rate of cancer, among them rare cancers. Port Chip is a very traditional community, 70% of the population at that point um, lived off what they could hunt for, fish, or gather, which made it all the more um, concerning, you know, for, for cancers uh, to develop in that with that background. The Cancer Board, when they released a report in 2009, uh, strongly recommended a study, a health study for, for CHIP. And in fact, in uh, from 2009 to 2010, I was part, uh, requested to be in and, and became part of a scientific team putting together terms of reference for such a study. It, it was all very positive and very good and, and very welcomed by the community and, and by the, the medical fraternity in Alberta. Unfortunately, um the chair of the committee of this scientific team um towards the end of our series of meetings uh put in a clause that would have had industry uh be part of a management oversight committee on any such study. That 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 uh suggestion was met with um Objections by the majority of the scientific team or our, our, our um, opinion was that uh, industry had no part to play or should not have any part to play in, in a health study, especially given the fact that uh, upstream from Fort Chip uh, uh, lies the, the tar sands mining industry. And that was the industry that that was recommended to be part of the study. Uh, and number two, um, the uh, the findings of any health study um, with industry being part of it would be open to question. You know, the credibility would be shot from, from the start. Uh, so for CHIP, when they were presented with this uh, proposal, like a template of a health study, the terms of reference were very good. But with this clause for industry to be part of the study... For Chip, rejected it immediately, uh, and the response was, "This could be like the fox looking after the henhouse." And with that rejection, the government, both federal and provincial, walked away. And the only study, the only study that's been done of any description, the only decent look at the community, was uh, organized by the the two. Um, bands, the Cree Band and Mixu Cree First Nation and the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation in collaboration with the University of Manitoba in 2014. And that study found, uh, you know, a a preliminary study, unfortunately, it wasn't followed up, um, but they they found a direct connection between uh, toxins in the environment and the health of the community.
0: And there's nothing that compels the province or Health Canada to follow up on these uh, research studies?
1: You know, that, that, that is the, the, the crux of the matter. You know, the, the promises were, were made. And, and, you know, even going back before my time in Fort Chip, back to the late 80s, there was a study called the Northern River Basin Study. Uh, that was undertaken uh, with both uh, provincial and federal input. That study con- uh, suggested uh, that, you know, at that point, the tar the, um, the sands were just in their sort of infancy. But that study suggested that a, um, a health study of um, the peoples living downstream of the industry should be undertaken. And that never happened. And then there were another uh, sorry a series of uh, efforts made uh, in uh, in the province to look at the health of uh, people living downstream and those studies uh, the, the findings were shelved nobody nobody has access to those and then with this promise of a health study um, you know that, that was the closest the the Community of Port Chip and indeed people downstream came to a, a comprehensive health study. Nothing has happened.
0: Where do you think the resistance is coming from?
1: To be honest, I I don't know. Um, but it was it was very interesting the the, the almost reflex reaction and backlash uh, that happened. When the, the health of the community was highlighted, um, parallel with highlighting the fact that the community had been trying to advocate for itself in terms of environmental changes for years. You know, the, the, the community was advised, for instance, by Health Canada in the early 2000s that, um, they shouldn't drink the water from the lake, Lake Athabasca. Uh, because of uh, high levels of arsenic, and when when the community attempted on its own to sort of inquire as to where this arsenic was coming from, um, they had no response. There was no response at all, and and sort of that that sort of background. You know, very very noble people, um, people in Port Chip and and very quiet, very. Um, measured and um, you know, just very, very traditional, minding their own business. So it it was very um, very defensive uh, on the part of, of government and industry. The reaction to the health issues and Fort chip being highlighted in parallel with the environmental changes that the community had had been noticing. So I, I'm. But like I said, I don't know. Um, but I suspect, I suspect that there's a an attempt uh, was made and is still being made to protect the sacred cow that is the Tarzan's.
0: And so, what do you think? You know, can get this over the finish line for the people of, of Fort Chip? Do you see this issue getting resolved, or or is this just something that just just kind of a a persistent uh tragedy
1: nothing happened jody before the media got involved and since media involvement there's been action for instance the the cancer board health study or the cancer board study of the community i'm i'm my glass is always half full i'm a born optimist i'm i'm hoping that eventually there will be a, an admission of, you know, an, an, not just a, a continuing need uh, for a study, but an, an admission that the tar sands mining industry has caused severe damage to the environment. It's right on the, on the Athabasca River. Uh, the issues in port ship stem from what's happening upstream. A comprehensive health study would look at all determinants of health. And if, if that study concluded that industry has impacted the health of the community, that's very unfortunate. If it concludes, you know, and, and it is impartial and independent, if it concludes that there is no impact, then that's fine. But just get to the bottom of the pathology that's occurring in the community. Uh, I I think I think eventually it will happen.
0: Well, you know, we've seen, you know, physicians and other types of clinicians speaking up during the pandemic, whether it was about the fact that there was this novel contagious disease, uh, or about conditions um in long-term care and other types of workplace settings. Um it, it certainly would seem that um uh People are are in a bit of a moment to to listen to clinicians uh, when it comes to health matters.
1: Yeah, um, you know, you're you're right. I mean, it's it's you know it, it goes through a sort of a a a cycle um, over the years. I mean, thinking back to SARS, um, but in Alberta. It's it's sort of a it's different. Um, you know, the, there's I am not just the only physician who has um, raised concerns about for instance the, the, the tar sands and the impact on the environment and, and, and by extension uh the health of individuals uh downstream, immediately and distantly downstream. It's 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 strange. And then again, it's not strange that there hasn't been um, an appropriate um, reaction and action taken.
0: Are you still experiencing, um, you know, aspects of of reprisal or retaliation?
1: It, It has never gone away. But the level of support for my stance has mushroomed over the years. You know, I, I, myself, my wife, Charlene, um, she's been by my side through all of this, um, an incredibly important uh, element of this. And we have traveled the world um, giving presentations on on this issue. Um, A few years ago, we were at the AGM of Statoil in Stavanger in Norway. Addressing the shareholders and, and brought about um, for the very first time a vote about staying in or leaving the Tire Sands. The, the vote was overwhelmingly in favor of, of staying, but since then, Stat Oil have pulled out. Hmm. Yeah, the, the support is, is, is palpable, um, but I'm still uh, viewed by uh, the authorities. In the province, as being um, bad uh, for for the um, you know for, for my past and for the my continued sense, you, you learn to ignore it. You know it, it's it's um, it's it's there, um, never gone away. We've learned to live with it, and we carry on.
0: Has this experience changed you?
1: I tell people that before it started I was six foot eight and had long blonde hair. Uh, I'm now i I'm five foot six with no hair. Um, uh, you know that that's obviously not true. Um <laughs> but um it, it it has um made me realise how important it is to be an advocate. Um it's it's made me think twice about um commenting but it hasn't stopped me, me commenting and, and, and raising concerns. I, I think I've been a better mentor for students and, uh, medical residents. Uh, I'm, I'm a, involved in teaching at the university of Alberta. Um, I think, I think it's enabled me to emphasize, um, the, the spirit of, um, being a community advocate and, and actually being able to, um, you know, point out in, in real terms um, what it means, the price you may have to pay. I read a book years ago called The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. I think it was published in 1937. It was about a, a Scottish physician who uh, entered his first uh, practice in Wales, in a colliery town, a coal mining town in Wales. On his arrival, um, or shortly after, he, f- he found there was a high rate of um, dysentery in the community. And on further inquiry, he found that the water supply for the community ran right beside the sewer line. And the town had been basically built and paid for by the coal mining company the the sewer system and the water system were in need of replacement but the coal mining company would not um, countenance that and realizing the connection between the two one night um dr manson was his name all all fictitious but um i'll come to the reason why i'm telling you this in a, a second one night he broke into the coal mining company office and stole some dynamite and threw it down the sewer manhole and blew up the sewer line and the water line. When when investigations were completed, it was concluded that it was gas in the sewer line that caused the explosion. But it, it meant that both lines had to be replaced and he saved the health of the community. I tell my students and residents um, that uh, from time to time you need to blow up A sewer line, in order to uh, benefit your patients, and when they look at me in a kind of a a quizzical way, I reference the book. Uh, I bought copies of the book, secondhand copies of the book. You can't buy it at any of the uh, chapters or Indigo anymore. I bought copies over the years and handed them out to select residents and students who I think get it, and and that's the way I practice. I've since this whole four-chip um, um, thing, i practice in that way.
0: If you had to do it all over again, would you? In a heartbeat. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me, and thank you for your advocacy.
1: I really appreciate this, Jody. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me, David, and welcome to At-Risk. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So help our audience understand, why is whistleblowing such a risky choice for a person to make?
2: Oh, well, there's a very complex answer to that question, but I I think the bottom line is that, in my experience, when a whistleblower raises a concern, it is often perceived, and sometimes openly and sometimes subtly, uh, even imperceptibly, um, as a threat to an organization, and so it's inevitable that whistleblower actions will uh, cause a reaction. And it, it I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that if, if one could establish an organization which was extremely enlightened in the area of whistleblowing policy. Um, there would be that reaction, but the fact of the matter is that most organizations organizations are not like that. So there's almost invariably a reaction to whistleblowing, and it's and it's almost always negative, and it's 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 akin to 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 use a a very popular. Uh, topic. It's akin to a virus. You know, a virus uh, enters into your body, and your body does what it can to fight it off. And it, uh, unfortunately, even though whistleblowers generally are trying, are, are doing better for organization, they're they're often perceived as a virus. They're perceived as as a threat or an attack. And so, it's inherently risky for somebody to uh, essentially be a virus, except that this is a good virus. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, so my so much wrongdoing has been revealed uh, through whistleblowing.
2: Well, that's right, and and you know I was part of a group a, a few years ago. You may be familiar with the Canadian Standards Association, the CSA. Uh, now they're called the CSA Group. Um, if you buy a toaster oven, for example, there'll be a little CSA logo on it saying it, it electrically it works properly and it's safe. And and, and they do um, they do guidelines for various policies, including a whistleblower policy. So I was involved in this group that. Uh, help create that policy. And, and one of the things that we really stressed to organizations was that you should try to create a, a culture which um, supports and encourages speaking up. Because at the end of the day, uh, speaking up about problems within an enterprise is a good thing, right? You want to know about problems. You want to know whether or not uh, one out of every widget is, you know, every, every 20 widgets is, is broken, Um, And and in some cases, it could be much more serious. It could be in in terms of a drug approval process. It could be health and safety in a workplace. It could be, uh, to to use another current example, the the extent of care in long-term care facilities. All of these things are really positive because they point out problems that affect human beings. And so, yeah, uh, whistleblowers are are usually doing a a very helpful thing at at great risk, I, I would add, of course.
0: Yeah, I I used to work at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and, um, you know, I'm sure we didn't live up to this every day, like, just to be candid, but, you know, there used to be this great poster uh, on our patient relations officers um, uh, in her office, and it said, um, every complaint is a gift.
2: Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I want one of those. It's an opportunity to improve, right? That's right, exactly right. And... (laughs) You know what? Sometimes, sometimes it's just an intuition. Sometimes it's a suspicion, or maybe an observation that's not quite complete. So it, it's not always the case that someone who identifies a wrongdoing is right. But even those are, are should be welcome because the people should feel free to express a concern like that, right or wrong, and uh, you know as long as it's being done in good faith. And, and the fact of the matter is that ninety nine point nine percent, and in other words, the vast majority of Disclosures like that are done in good faith uh, in order to root out a a problem. So we should be welcoming that. Yeah, it is a gift. You're right.
0: Do you think that some of the resistance to whistleblowing, whether it be in the public sector or in the private sector, is this concern about complaints being made about bad faith? Or do you think the resistance comes from elsewhere?
2: I think it comes from elsewhere. I, I, I think that... Labeling a complaint as a bad faith complaint is simply a tactic. Uh, it's a very easy way, uh, you know, an ad hominem attack sometimes. It's, it's an easy way to divert interest in, in the problem and it happens all the time. Um, but the reality is that, uh, as I said, the, the vast majority of concerns there are legitimate and expressed in good faith. And so, um, I think we have to be skeptical about allegations that uh, a disclosure of wrongdoing has been made in bad faith. And uh, frankly, it, 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 you have to have the, the strongest possible information in order to support that. Um, and I think we have to be, we have to assume that an allegation that a whistleblower has acted out of bad faith is probably um, a more defensive mechanism than anything, and it's it's unfortunate that that we get to that point because it 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 you know it, it's a wonderful tool right because it immediately shifts the debate it immediately shifts the problem onto the whistleblower and and uh, the the subject matter of the whistleblowing is removed from the discussion. Are you doing this in good faith? Uh, are, do you have some sort of axe to grind? Is you know is your brother-in-law involved somehow? And in this? Uh, you know all sorts of questions can, can can arise, and it really distracts from from the problem. And of course, it diverts the very very limited resources that a whistleblower has into defending themselves, and that has the ultimate impact of, of making their their um, disclosure less effective.
0: So I guess that's also kind of part of the risk of blowing the whistle is that you know, there might be a personal attack coming your way.
2: Yes. And I would, I would, there might be, and I would go so far as to say there likely will be uh, a personal attack. Yeah, that is, it's definitely one of the risks. And, you know, in my practice, it's very unfortunate. I mean, it's fortunate when when somebody comes to me before a disclosure of wrongdoing, they've got the wherewithal and the insight to get advice but it's unfortunate that I have to say to them, be prepared, you know, be prepared for all of these risks. And there's a whole slew of them and they're not pretty, you know, they're not pretty at all.
0: Yeah. And so just going back for a moment on this, on like where the resistance to adoption of whistleblower policies might be coming from, is it tied up in power? Is it just not wanting to be subject to um, other people's judgment or feedback, or, or, or where do you think it comes from?
2: Uh, well, I, I think I think it's more the latter, Jody. To be honest, um, I mean, in, in some ways, the latter is a part of. There's a power dynamic involved in that uh, as well. That, you know, people not wanting to be judged. Um, you know, I I, mean, I can give you an interesting insight. The the the, f- the federal government had established the public sector integrity officer. Uh, some years ago. It was a subset of the Treasury Board, so it, it was not statutorily established, but it had you know, some role to play in terms of whistleblowing. And then in due course, they they passed legislation which established a separate office, and that legislation required a legislative review, um, which was supposed to take place after five years, and I think it was more like eight or ten years. But at any rate, um, there was a review, and I, I was involved in testifying before the committee, as were a lot of other whistleblower advocates. And the committee came up with um, that is the operations committee of the, of, of the house of commons came up with a, a pretty strong set of recommendations about uh, amending the act to make it better and the government of the day said no you know we're not going to do anything um, and I, in fact i had this conversation with somebody last night about whistleblower legislation it, it seems to me from a public perspective even from a political perspective it's kind of a no-brainer we're we're improving the opportunity for people to disclose wrongdoing within government, which is going to make government safer, more efficient, and make the you know the policies and the procedures that are implemented by government to be better. Who wouldn't oppose that, right? And yet, here was a golden opportunity for the federal government to amend a legislation which is universally criticized, and and they refuse. So, what's what's that about? I'm not sure. I, I think I mean I know when people criticize me, I don't like it. (laughs) Um, and I'm sure Jody, you don't like it.
0: I certainly don't love it. Let's put it that way.
2: (laughs) Of course you're perfect. But, but anyway, um, so, you know, in, in a way it gets at a fairly, I don't want to sound too esoteric here, but it gets at a fairly deep seated psychological issue, which we all have, which is, you know, nobody likes to be criticized. Um, you know, which is why rigorous programs will have a process where you know blame's not the issue, and where people can do it anonymously sometimes, um, and, and and so it's there's not a face to the allegation, things like that. Um, there are ways to make the system uh, friendlier, uh, as it were.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, I just you know, turning my mind back to to the hospital and you know, in addition to to having a patient relations officer, we did have a whistleblowing policy. And it was something that was actually uh, mandated by our audit committee. And um, we had set up a, a third party line. And, you know, I was, you know, somewhere in the middle between being a seasoned uh, general counsel and still being, you know, uh, on the young side of a lawyer. And, you know, I remember thinking like, like I kind of thought it—it it, it, it was a little bit extreme. It's like okay, I'm like people trust me; they can, you know, like people talk to me all the time. But you know, in reading some of the stories about you know what's happened to to whistleblowers and um, and sometimes the protections and policies don't work, and so so that that need to be anonymous or, or at least the option, if possible, um, is hugely important.
2: It is important, yes, and, uh, you know, as an option, it can be crucial. Um, however, when, you know, oftentimes, particularly if you're dealing with reprisal, so if you're, if you're dealing with, well, even when you're dealing with the wrong, the wrongdoing, but there are implications for people who are employees as well if they've actually engaged in the wrongdoing, um, and so sometimes procedural fairness obligations come into play and, and anonymity may be sacrificed because of that. But you know, wh- wh- those are the extreme cases. We're talking about you know regular folks observing a problem in the workplace and having a desire to repair it. You know, wh- why would we discourage that? Uh, that's a, you know, it's a silly question to ask, but it, it just happens.
0: Yeah, and so what are so 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 we've spoken about anonymity as one possibility when, when it's suitable. Um, what other types of, um, protections do you often see in whistleblowing policies? The,
2: the, the main protection has to be against retaliation or reprisal. Um, because if, if, There, You know, most policies will say that um, a person should not be subject to retaliation or reprisal, should not suffer any adverse consequences if they decide to raise uh, um, an issue of wrongdoing, even if they're wrong. Um, And that that takes away bad faith considerations. And as I said, in in the vast majority of cases, those aren't relevant. So um, most policies have that as a stated objective. But are there any teeth? Is there, if a whistleblower is the victim of reprisal, what can they do about it? And that's where uh, the risk analysis for an individual really comes into play because they're going to think, okay, somebody might get mad at me for a few days. That's one thing, but oh, I might lose my job. Um, That's another thing. Maybe you're the sole breadwinner. Maybe you're a single parent. There could be any number of, of factors that mean that losing a job is is drastically. You know detrimental to your life so having an effective system in terms of reprisal is significant and it 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 means you know what you might think it means as as a lawyer you might think okay it means that if there's a wrong done to you you can undo that wrong you know if you get fired you can be reinstated if you lose money you can be uh repaid that money etc but, on top of that there 's the whole process and and most of these systems have processes which stink <laughs> to be frank <laughs> um, you know you know how much is it going to cost and and then there 's the question of proof, and that 's where I think virtually every whistleblower advocate uh, is in agreement that if you have a system where um Reprisal is prohibited and you have recourse in the event you believe you've been the victim of reprisal, who proves that it happened? Right. And and so um, what we always advocate for is a reverse onus, which is that if you allege that uh, there has been a reprisal against you, it's going to be assumed to be true. Unless the employer, and invariably we're talking about employers, but let's just say organization. Unless the organization can demonstrate that there was a legitimate reason for it, and a lot of people think that's kind of shocking, you know, and especially if you're trained in the common law, you're, you know, he who asserts or she who asserts must prove that whole notion. But um, we've had this kind of uh, principle in place in in circumstances forever. It, for example, in labor legislation, if if you're involved in a union organizing drive and you get fired because you're trying to organize a union you can file a, a complaint and it's assumed that you were fired because you were trying to organize a union and the employer has to disprove that um and and so this is not an un- not a, a shocking um tool to be used but it's crucial in the case of whistleblowers because it's so difficult it's it's rare that you find the so-called smoking gun uh, showing that there was reprisal
0: yeah and and you know It's a lot of work to prove things, right? Like even 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 things that seem obvious, like to to prove it to a standard um, that can you know result, for example, in you getting your job back. Like that's that that that's a lot of work after you just did something that's probably pretty emotional draining at the least.
2: Emotional for sure, and if if you've lost an income stream, then you're stuck, you know, struggling to prove something with. In, in many cases, very few resources. You know, thankfully, a lot of whistleblowers have the support of their unions. And I'll just, to be frank, I'm a labor lawyer, so I I, I support unions often. Um, but but you know, and certainly in the public sector, a lot of whistleblowers have been supported by their unions, and that's uh, we're so lucky for that that uh, they've been able to do that.
0: Yeah, you know, some people may be asking themselves, like, you know, in some workplaces there are unions. You know, there's Audit programs, both external and internal. Um, there's always the media. You know, going to the media as an option, third-party reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Why aren't those enough?
2: Let's face it. In the majority of cases, a whistleblower is not somebody who you know works for the local gas station and is alleging that the you know, the fuel counter is slightly inaccurate. You know, in in most cases, we're talking about significant organizations, large organizations in both private and public sector. In the public sector, by definition, they're large. So these organizations have enormous resources and um, all of the other tools that are available that you mentioned, sure, they're available, but um, organizations are able to mitigate the effects of those tools pretty effectively. And uh, a, a whistleblower really needs somebody to be in their corner uh, other than themselves uh, to take on the organizations and uh, if they're expected you know expected to defend themselves in addition to having disclosed wrongdoing um, it's an enormous undertaking and um, without either legal support and, and I don't mean legal counsel but legal support in the the form of a a reverse onus or you know a process that makes it easier to pursue their case it's very difficult but on top of that having all the resources that you need to have physical financial emotional resources uh they're just not there but the organized i mean if you blow the whistle against a major bank they've got an in-house legal department they're going to be set into motion immediately you know and you're stuck um go on the phone or whatever, trying to find a lawyer or talking to your neighbor or whatever. It's the the balance of power. And and we talked about this earlier, Jody, about power and and the balance of power is stacked against the whistleblower. So all of those things you mentioned are helpful and they have their place, but you still need some teeth at the end of the day. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. I think the other thing too, even, even setting aside sort of the, the power imbalances that, that, that exist and, and kind of assuming that, you know, the vast majority of people show up every day to work wanting to do better. And that's, you know, from the highest levels down to the lowest. Sometimes there's just blind spots and whether it's willfully blind or unconsciously blind, sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's, the shock of of a whistleblower just sort of saying, "No, I'm 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 you know I'm pulling the lever that's going to stop the production line from just uh-huh. you know keep going." Um, sometimes you know that's what it takes.
2: Well, yes, um, sometimes it does, and it, it it almost feels like if you have an undertaking, it seems to be operating successfully. It, it, you know, it, it it runs by itself, so to speak. Uh, but somebody points out that there's something wrong about it. It's, it, it, you know, for some people, you have to suspend your belief, because you, you see it, right? You see it operating, you see things working. And then you think, how, how can that be? How can that be a problem? How can it be that serious? Um, so, you know, sometimes progress blinds us, frankly. <laughs> so um, it, it, at the end of the day, whistleblowing is as much about human psychology and social relations as it is about anything
0: that's very interesting it actually reminds me something the first conversation we had on the at risk podcast was with uh chris hadfield Mm. and and i was talking to him about the temptation to move ahead you know like to to basically sail out to sea even though you see the storm clouds and he said jody people love their plants (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and so his advice was don't fall in love with your plan
2: <laughs> well that's a really good it's a, that's a really good way to to, to look at it Um yeah. it's hard to be flexible you know
0: yeah yeah no for yeah. sure um so one other kind of um development uh not not to get too into the details of, of law. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, in your practice or or, you know, amongst your colleagues, we've seen in law such a proliferation of the confidentiality agreement or obligations to not disparage. Like it used to be those were kind of reserved for, you know, serious situations or, or situations of high conflict, but now they're just kind of like, it's, you would be, you know, guilty of malpractice if you didn't put it into every separation between two parties is, is that hampering, um, progress, you know, uh, via whistleblowers.
2: That's yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and it comes up often, uh, I've, I've encountered it a lot lately as being, um, you know, a systemic problem, right? Because you, you blow the whistle, there's a, there's some sort of process engaged and then it's settled. And part of the settlement is that you can't uh, speak any further about it. Um, I mean, presumably part of the settlement also includes correcting whatever the wrongdoing was or the reprisal was in the beginning. Um, and that's something that, I mean, we have to remember that confidentiality cuts both ways. And, and, and so sometimes, you know, you're prohibited from disclosing what led to a, a whistleblower laying the claim or, or disclosing the wrongdoing. But also, there will be actions taken, hopefully, that um, imply that the organization was faulty and, 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 you know provide some corrective measures they just don't want to admit it publicly so so usually there's there's a quid pro quo that sorry a quid pro quo there um, but at the same time if if you look at this as a public policy issue then you you end up in a circumstance where yeah you are resolving something and the the crucial element of the resolution is not known to the public at large um, that that's probably for like for, for social scientists is probably a, less of a concern in the private sector. Although these days the private sector is is pretty influential and has lots of you know impact on us. But less of a concern in the private sector than the public sector. But it's it's so hard to get around that because it it it, it like frankly, Jody, it, it, even if somebody is just terminated you know and and they're terminated and they're entitled to notice of of severance um you know a notice period and they don't get enough and then negotiate a settlement and instead of getting six months they get eight months well even that becomes confidential right it's 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 so typical these days that it's it's hard to ignore and for whistleblowers you get put in a position where you've gone through hell literally and here's a faint hope of getting some compensation, and maybe even some recognition, and maybe even some correction of the problem you've identified. But you're told, yeah, but you have to shut up afterwards. You know, from a risk analysis, who, who, who's gonna who's gonna want to speak more when you at least you get all of these birds? You know, you you, you get all of these uh, certain things um, in exchange for your silence. It's unfortunate, but. um it's kind of like the way it's just the way it operates. And as you point out, it seems to be, you know, de rigueur. It's typical. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's a real challenge. Right. Um, And it's just kind of another way that, that, that reticence, that, that, um, that resistance to openness kind of plays it, it itself out. Yeah. So let's talk about, the public sector, uh, because yes, you know, private sector companies can adopt these policies. They often at least start off adopting them to try and route out fraud within their organizations. But I think more and more those organizations, that's sort of the start of the journey. And then, and then they open it up to, to cover other types of wrongdoing, but you can have whistleblowing in the public sector too, in governments. And, um, it's really, I must say, when I was, you know, kind of reviewing um, all of the different policy briefs on this, Canada is really far behind on this.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how,
0: how far behind are we? Is it just me, kind of overreading into it, or or, or are we really substantially behind?
2: We're pretty far behind. I and I, I'd have to do, I'd have to put my hand on it, Jody, to find the document, but I know that there is at least one. A uh, fairly rigorous um, rating of, I guess it's probably mostly Western democracies, but wait, rating of, oh well, no, maybe not, but a rating of countries in terms of their um, public sector whistleblower protection laws. And, and Canada is pretty close to the bottom. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I,
0: and here's the shocking thing for me you know, so sometimes Canada will. Be a little, we'll be out of step with other countries, and you know when you look at the policy landscape, you'll be like, oh, well, Europe's really far ahead, and the United States isn't doing this, and I guess maybe we're being a little bit influenced by our neighbors, or vice versa, like you know, uh, you know, Canada unites, you know, uh, Europe and Canada do this, you know, you get this triangular relationship, but. The EU has a standard on whistleblowing. The United States embraces whistleblowing. Uh, Australia is a leader in whistleblowing. We we really are uh, uh, quite quite an aberration.
2: Yes, and it's it's you know it's it's very easy for us to be smug here in the north uh, when we compare ourselves to that nation to the south of us. But um, you're right. Like uh, I mean. I, Two words, Thomas Paine, <laughs> you know, come to mind. Uh, I mean, the, the United States has a very strong tradition of challenging um, public policymakers, which I think we 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 lack in 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 terms of intensity. I think, um, and and we often look to them for progress and for even for analysis on um, you know whistleblower policies and how they work. And I don't know. I mean, I wish I wish I knew. You know, the 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 federal government recognized that they needed something like this. Uh, and they established the the public sector integrity officer, um, and that was back I guess in the early two thousands two thousand two ish it was I think. Um, but you know it's kind of like labor law. I mean my, my theory about labor law is it, it it's intended to contain the right to strike. It's limited to a certain period of time because governments recognize how powerful it is. And I think I think Canada ha- it has in a way um, taken a, a page from that. Uh, book and, and said, you know, well, with whistleblowers, we're gonna we're, we're gonna establish a a central system for dealing with wrongdoing and, and reprisals. Here it is, and, and it has the effect of diverting all the energy into that system. And, and as I I believe, the system is pretty ineffective, and so you end up channeling them all into a process which is you know unhelpful at the end of the day for the most part. So um, in that sense, it's probably not surprising. But I don't know why. And, and, you know, the federal legislation, the Public Service Disclosure Protection Act, it, it, you know, as, as you know, Jody, in law, preambles the legislation aren't effective in the sense that they're not binding, but they give a, a sense of, of what the act is about. And in the case of the Public Service Disclosure Protection Act, the preamble is pretty significant, and it essentially situates the act in the context of Canadian uh, constitutional democracy. You know, the idea that a whistleblower is an essential component of the operation of our democratic system because it's just another one of these checks that we really need. And yet then, and then you read the rest and then you read how it's applied and it's just not effective. So there's a recognition of its importance, but we haven't followed through. And like I said, the, the um, government operations committee, gave the government a golden opportunity, right? It was an all-party committee, and and here they were. Here was was some really positive recommendations, and most experts agreed on these, including myself, and the government just turned it down. I don't know why. I wish I knew.
0: And the provinces haven't taken it up either like there's there, there there's not a, a shining star of a province that that that's adopted a a, a good whistleblowing policy either because sometimes that's also how change happens right because we do have multiple jurisdictions but it hasn't happened at the provincial level either
2: no no you're right um i mean there are some provinces do have a similar system but it's it's equally in many cases it's equally ineffective and you have ad hoc things too. You know there there are many municipalities who have um, you know tried to establish whistleblower policies, but they're they're also limited in their scope. Um, yeah, it's it, it you know at the end of the day, to me, like, just from a risk analysis, not only from the whistleblower's perspective, but from the government's perspective, why why wouldn't you establish a system which allows people to freely and fairly disclose potential flaws in the operation of government? and, you know, compensates them for their, for their wrongdoing. I mean, just, again, to borrow something from, from pop culture, you know, you watch a, a television detective series and, and they're often relying on, you know, tips from the public and they're, they're kind of revered, these public tips, right? Because mm. they, they, or if somebody is kidnapped, there's a, you know, there's an APB that goes out and we have, of course, the Amber Alerts, which are, are reserved to really serious cases and thank goodness we have them. But the whole point is that people out there can help, and, and why don't we throw the same effort into uh you know regular problems that are in the in the operation of government i, I don't know why it just it, it doesn't make any sense uh, except that people don't like to be challenged
0: yeah uh, I, you know when I, I reflect on you know my my very limited experience but but the experience of bringing in the whistleblowing policy back when i was general counsel um the audit committee was very clear to them it was about a culture not just of transparency but of accountability and a commitment to continuous improvement right because sometimes that is you know the best way to to improve is to hear from your detractors or or, or for, from people who who maybe aren't even detractors or are just just see something that you don't that is an opportunity to get better yeah um i before i let you go i wanted to ask you i i this is not scientific by any stretch but um i did a quick twitter search um and i just put in whistleblower and i looked at the top 10 tweets and i was really taken aback because for sure you saw um Uh, some examples of whistleblowing you you would expect to see. Uh, So, you know, what's happened at Smith College in terms of, um, uh, you know, allegations over racism, a person resigned uh, from the school. um, And there were Google's recent terminations of two leaders in their AI group. But there were also um, tweets about anti-Black racism training, you know, at a Buffalo school board and at Coca-Cola, like, like, and there was also um, a, uh, a tweet from alt-right political activist Jack Pozabiak, uh, you know self-identifying as as a whistleblower, and it made me wonder, are there concerns about the concept of whistleblowing being overtaken by um, less than good faith uh, parties?
2: Mm. Well, that's, um, that's a, a, it's a good question. Um,
0: but I, I, think,
2: I mean, I don't have that concern. In, in any, in any system where you establish a process for people to, to obtain redress for perceived wrongs, you're going to have people who are doing it for, with inappropriate motives. It, it doesn't matter whether it's whistleblowing or whether it's, um, an insurance claim. Um, you can think of numerous examples where where you may know people where people are, are just, you know, the, to, to use the, the vernacular, to they're trying to milk the system, so to speak. Um, I think it's, frankly, because of the risks involved for whistleblowers, I, I think it's very rare, but it may happen. And and to me, um, if it does happen, if people too easily self-label as a whistleblower, um, that's just the price we pay. You know, mm-hmm. there there are going to be there are going to be those cases and they're going to be very very rare but we we pay you know we have to deal with them because it's just like whether it's a human rights complaint or any sort of allegation there will be cases where people are are, are making complaints that may not be justifiable um, but we still allow them to do that and and we allow the course to run so why is there this inherent skepticism almost immediately of whistleblowers um i don't know um I, I, I think we should just welcome it. And, and frankly, our, our legal systems are robust enough to weed out the, the bad faith actors. And the problem is that, the, the, like, like I've said, whether it's whistleblowing or human rights complaints or, or, you know, sexual assault allegations, the, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the concerns expressed are legitimate. Um, and if there's, you know, if you want to use a very simple assessment of whether they're not, um, just look at the risk involved in being public about that because it's, it's horrible what people go through.
0: Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me and uh, for helping us better understand whistleblowing and the toll it can take, and particularly in a risk context. Thank you. Thank
2: you, Jody, it's my pleasure.